0: Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. I'm coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And (laughs) Well, the the not famous part is ironic because they're all well known and respected in their fields by their peers and in the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name, but they really are brilliant and committed to their work. So I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and their work. And I believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have on my program Uh, Jasmine Greenemeyer, and Jasmine is the Vice President of Global Strategic Partnerships at EMD-Sorono. Her experience spans, including uh, driving national and community public health interventions, advocating for health equity, increasing access to early detection and treatment of cancer. In her current role, she oversees global initiatives, including healthy women, healthy economies, and embracing carers. Which I'm super excited about because I appreciate the important role that caregivers play. Jasmine received her bachelor of arts in psychology from Michigan State and her master's in public health from the University of Michigan. So, Jasmine, welcome to the program.
1: Well, Dave, thank you so much for having me today.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm going to start. Um, I'd love to have you tell us about yourself, but I'm going to start with you know you're from Michigan. Of course, I'm from Minnesota, so you know we're fellow Midwesterners, which I which I appreciate. Um, But you have degrees from Michigan and Michigan State, which I think is kind of unique. So I'm really interested to hear, you know, what do your friends and family think about that um, back in Michigan?
1: Well, goodness, that's a good story, (laughs) because originally I had to do a mea culpa tour when I got accepted to Michigan State, because um, most of my family is overwhelmingly Wolverine fans. Um, But... Michigan State had a journalism program at the time and University of Michigan did not and it was one of the best journalism programs. Um, and little did I know as a you know, young person on my journey that I quickly transferred out of journalism, but I really enjoyed my time at Michigan State. And then took a year off when taught English in the Czech Republic, but then came back and did my master's in public health at the University of Michigan and was welcomed back into the family. Uh, But then my first job was at Michigan State University's health center, uh, doing a combination of um, helping them with their alcohol and drug misuse program, because we had had the NCAA tournaments and the riots at the time, and they wanted someone who could come in and kind of bridge uh, between the community and the university. So my first paycheck was at Michigan State. So I have to tell (laughs) you.
0: So you've been, so you got back in the graces of the family. Then you went back and got it your first paycheck yeah. at Michigan State, and it, I, I assume over time that they've forgiven you for for the for going to Michigan State and spending so much time there.
1: I think they have to wrap their mind around when you know you come to my house. I have the one of the probably I think there's only one percent of us out there that have the half University of Michigan Wolverine and the Spartan flag right it's out my door so I wear it proudly to be able to talk about why both programs are phenomenal right and Michigan's got great programs even Minnesota does too we can acknowledge that
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that you know it's been a long time since I uh, lived in Minnesota but I still kind of have a heart string there for them because Absolutely. I because yeah. they, they, they got beat up so bad over the years in football by Michigan and in basketball by Michigan State so um, I feel bad for them but uh, totally appreciate your Midwestern roots though
1: there's something about the Midwest, right? Always.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, I say Minnesota nice sometimes, but uh, there's a lot of nice people out here too in uh, in Boston. But when you went to get your uh, master's in public health, did you have kind of a plan of what you wanted to, where you thought that would take you?
1: I would never have guessed like where my career has gone. Um, But at the time, it was interesting because I had had an internship when I was at Michigan State helping um, at a child uh, treatment center in psychiatry. And it really kind of broke my heart just helping kids one-on-one because at the time, um, the treatment was mostly around heavily medicating kids and then putting them back into their environment. And I quickly surmised that I'd rather be a systems person that worked on improving uh, the health outcomes for individuals and families, and I thought public health would be a better way to do that. Um, so I look back and there's been a spread, I would say, of community organizing, community building, working with coalitions has been kind of the consistent theme since I went down the path of getting um, a master's in public health.
0: Yeah, my, my youngest son, Pat, uh, has got his undergraduate degree in public health. And he's a nurse practitioner now. And I thought that was a really cool background, yeah. uh, right?
1: That was some of the most interesting people in um, classes at Michigan. There there was a contingency, I would say it was about a fifth at the time, but I, I guess, I'm going to guess it's grown significantly of medical students and um, people going into the medical field that were getting their master's in public health at the time. And I, I just thought that was brilliant, right?
0: Yeah, well, you know, he went there as an undergrad, uh, University of Maryland, to, to uh, he thought he wanted to be a doctor and go to medical school. And he didn't get into this program in biology. Yeah. It turns out he didn't like biology. So, you know, uh, he was in this undergraduate uh, living learning group uh, program. And I said, well, you should you should look into public health. I don't think he even considered it. But he's so grateful that he did because, you know, he, was, he got his first job was working at the COVID overflow hospital at the convention oh. center you know, and then he got a job at the addiction clinic uh, or at the, uh, at McLean Hospital. And now he's working in, 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 at the addiction clinic at South Shore Hospital. So isn't it an amazing how that kind of played out for him?
1: But good for him. Yeah. I'd be really curious what like, he walked away as um, the most influential elements of getting that degree, but I yeah, for um, sure. really helps you think about people and societies and, and just have a more holistic view. on Yeah.
0: Health. Yeah. So, so what, what brought you to the patient advocacy work that you, uh, that you got involved with
1: well, goodness, I've had, I, so I started, uh, Michigan State, you know, with coalition building work, and then I went into medical ethics and then I went and worked with Prevent Cancer Foundation. And I think that was my first foray into, um, working with cancer patients and their families. Uh, but then I got recruited to go over to Colorectal Cancer Alliance and at the time to help them scale up and build up. And then um, that led to my journey here at EMD Serono, where I began um, my initial work in the patient insights and advocacy team. And then felt like I just got the luckiest job in the world uh, this past April, April of 2020, where I began my work uh, supporting embracing carers and healthy women, healthy economies.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to talk about that, but I, I, I'm curious to know about the transition you know, from the nonprofit world uh, to EMD Serono, and most recently, you were the chief Strat- chief strategy and Pro- program officer of the Colon Cancer Alliance. And, you know, making that transition and how your time at, uh, as in the patient advocacy world, really kind of shapes your thinking um, at EMD, I would imagine it has a huge impact on, on how you came to EMD and what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. And I would say just to tell that story fully, I'd come back to my time at Prevent Cancer Foundation where I was working on um, state dialogue for action projects where we had um, grants from the Center for Disease Control and they wanted these coalitions to work together in states to help pass colorectal cancer screening uh, for it to be covered by insurance companies. And I remember sitting around the table and there would only be one patient there in this uh, state-sponsored dialogue for action committee. And I just remember feeling like that's not right, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, part of it was a sense of urgency with policymakers, but to have one patient representing the whole entire patient view um, really led me to then working with the patient advocacy organization specifically and then making the evolution to a biotechnology company where they really wanted to hear directly from patients and their, their families impacted by cancer. And that just seemed the right evolution to me, to getting back to hearing directly from, you know, what are the unmet needs for you as you are on your cancer journey? And how can we help make that better or easier in some form. And sometimes it's not just about the treatment itself, right? It's about how to transition you back to work, how to make sure um, that you can easily get to your clinical trial or to your medical appointment, that we're removing some of those barriers to it. So I, I felt like it was a privilege to continue the thread um, and, and better assisting patients and their families.
0: Yeah. And how, how did they, did they find you? Do you find them? How did that, how did that play out?
1: So, it's a, you know, sometimes it's a small world, right? And it's serendipitous. And having been in the, um, the advocacy space for over 12 years, um, I had some different colleagues that I had worked with. And at the time, it was Scott Williams that recruited me and said, you know what, we're going to be launching a brand new um, oncology department within EMD Serono, And we know you've got a lot of experience working with both patients and provider groups. And, you know, we need someone who could kind of roll up their sleeves and go dirty and help me launch this brand new department. You know, is this attractive to you? Um, and I, I was intrigued, just to put it short, right? Yeah.
0: yeah and that was, and that was uh, in the patient advocacy uh, group. And then that led to your, in your current role. So how did that sort of play out? Going from
1: Yeah. From so, there, so Embracing Cares had launched in 2016. It was a global initiative. Um, and they'd had some different campaigns, but they wanted to look at caregiving from more of a public health point of view and how to better support particularly unpaid family caregivers. So the intersection of, you know, the policy issues to employer, um, to government, to, um, various health, you know, like, again, the ecosystem surrounding caregivers. And so this becomes this national foray, if you look at my career, to say that I was well suited to think about it from this holistic point of view. So when they asked me um, if this was something I'd be interested in, um, you know, I, I was like, when do I start? Uh, I'm in for that.
0: <laughs> I, totally can, I totally appreciate that. That's like, it's like, it is like, it's taking all of the experience that you described, starting at Michigan State, and and then the experience working for the Colon Cancer Alliance and Prevent Cancer, and and um, being able to to take that experience and shape it in a way to really, I I assume make a, feeling like you can make a, a big impact um, through the That's work right. here.
1: yeah. I mean, I would definitely say we're it's going back to you know we talked about in the beginning. We're as strong as our coalition is, and thankfully they have really come along and uh, evolved with us, and it goes back to listening directly to the community, and working with the community, and for the community, right, yeah. I believe in that.
0: Yeah, definitely, well, and I'll tell my, my listeners that I, that this is how I found you, uh, that how we met, you know, how I came across your work, was I had come across the Embracing Cares, and I don't, I can't remember how I found it, but it just, the name, first of all, just, you know, it, it you had me at that, you know, and I, so I wanted to hear more about it and that's how I reached out to you guys because I um, I often talk about the role that my wife played in my cancer care and and I think and we'll talk about um, you know the burden um, you know on, on women um, maybe I, I think of it I was just talking to someone yesterday about this how if, if the roles had been reversed and and I was her caregiver um, it would have been a totally different experience but it would have been so hard on her because we had three young kids at the time and so but even as it played out with her as my caregiver it was um, so hard on her and I I always tell her it was harder on her than it was on me because I just put my hat on and I put my my blinders on I just said I'm just going to go you know deal with this and and then she had to deal with everything else along with the emotional side of, of her husband and and not knowing there was uncertainty of of without doing a biopsy of my tumor they didn't know um, how aggressive it was. And so that whole thing. So wh- I, I, maybe we can just start by you. You mentioned, you started talking a little bit. Can you tell us about this program and kind of what is the mission of the program? And, um, you know, what are some of the uh, the key issues that, you know, that you see facing caregivers and what can we do about it?
1: Yeah. So I alluded to the fact that the program started in 2016 and the company looked at, you know, who are the most influential companies in the caregiver space, particularly the family caregiver, unpaid caregiver space, and we identified nine global organizations um, and brought them together and said, you know, we very much understand that you're specifically supporting the community, but what can we harness our collective energy to do together?
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, I think caregivers tend to focus on, obviously, the responsibility of taking care of their loved one and not taking care of themselves right and so is that kind of what what do you do or what can we do to you know bring that out in carriers make them make them aware of how important that is? because you know they'll my, like my wife is a perfect example she just kind of she didn't really acknowledge i don't think that she this was hard on her you know
1: so i would definitely say your wife's experience is not unique in fact we know that the majority of caregivers actually feel that way, that they have to kind of put on a mask, right? While they're assisting their loved one. Um, And we've seen that actually in our global report that we just recently conducted with over uh, 12 countries. And consistently we saw that caregivers have reported feeling overwhelmed um, more than ever, right? And we've been trying to think about ways To support groups, but also get messages out there where we talk about how important it is to connect with others that are going through this very similar experience. And that's where other caregiver advocacy groups shine, right? Um, We know talking to a mental health professional in particular situations is going to be helping, you know, with coping techniques or, you know, how to just negotiate um, your own feelings in the middle of this experience but we're also trying to suggest little things like taking you know the longer route uh to get home sometimes or how to fit in a short even a 10 minute walk how helpful that is but the best thing you can do is go for a walk with a loved one and talk about your problems um but we're just trying to say like there's a continuum of ways that um you should as a caregiver just be creating space and yeah for and
0: and those messages that come from these awesome organizations that, that you are collaborating with. Right. And, and how do they find, how do they find patients? Do patients find them or are they doing actively going to try to find, find patients that might not be looking for help or even know that they need help?
1: Yeah. I continue to feel like this is the million dollar question that most people, when they need advocacy organization, um, they're lucky if they actually find that, right? Meaning the Caregiver Action Network that we work with has a 1-800 number. Um, But I'm very curious how many people are even aware of that as a free resource, right? So just how much it takes, and that's where I view the role that we can play as a company is to try to help promote resources like this. But I wish that more um, health institutions really gave out this information right then when um, a patient is coming in for treatment to say, Here, here's some resources for you, the caregiver, or the multiple caregivers that might be in play with this. You're going to need this. You may not need it right now, but there might be another point um, in this journey with your loved one where you're going to need to think about your own needs in the middle of this.
0: That's a really good point. I hadn't. I hadn't really considered that but i don't think when i remember my story i'm quite sure that that conversation never happened and right
1: yeah i think very few institutions and i think this is a huge opportunity and i hope more people sees it particularly you know coming out of covid i think one of the silver linings has been telehealth so quite often um the medical team is seeing the patient, but it's off, often a loved one's right on there at the screen with them trying to take notes. Um, and so I, I just hope that it's not just thinking again, A medical team, just thinking about how to involve the caregiver in the patient's care, but pausing to say, you also, we need to think about how, what's your distress right now at this point in time and kind of take stock of that over time as the, the family is coming in to seek treatment, right? There might be something more stressful as they see like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to take off more work than I planned. Or, oh my gosh, I may, to, may need to step out of work for a while. Or, you know, what are the implications for our family now that we're in the middle of all this? And so for someone to kind of triage, what are the needs um, of the loved ones in the middle of this?
0: Well, I think that's a, that's a good use of that word triage, because I, I feel like that, is so overlooked. And I, uh, again, I, when I think of, I did a survey recently through some other work that I'm doing, and it was asked, it was a questionnaire that, that this foundation was putting together to, to try to see how, if a patient would stay into a clinical trial. And some of the questions that they asked were just so, they weren't yes or no questions. They were so complex. It was like you know, uh, would you travel for a clinical trial, or would you would you be able to get time off work for a clinical trial? And when I when I hear when I heard those questions from a patient perspective, I thought well, all that did is just stress me out more because, right? Because I don't know what my boss would say if I had to, you know, ask to to get time off. And so, those are the kinds of stresses that that not only patients but caregivers go through, thinking like, right? And and we think of different socioeconomic and economic status or circumstances or, or maybe certain racial ethnic communities, is it affect, you know, is it, I'm sure it must affect different communities differently. Do you take stock in that as well?
1: Absolutely, Dave. You know, we've seen um, that women six out of 10 times are the ones who are doing uh, more intensive types of caregiving. You know, I like to say it's not usually within a family, just one caregiver but the main caregiver is often either the partner, wife, daughter in a situation, and she's the one taking time off work um, or removing herself from the workforce altogether to care for her loved one. And you have to think through that there's not just implications for her taking time off right during that time period of intensive treatment, but there's also down the road effects for her, right? Like either re entering the workforce or pension. So we just always think through the knock-on effects, uh, particularly for women and the type of caregiving that they do. And what we were a little surprised by, and I guess perhaps we shouldn't have been, um, when we just did the 12-country care well-being index survey, is seeing that communities of color are more likely to do 33-plus hours of caregiving, so the most intensive types of caregiving, where that's practically a full-time job. So that's signaling to me is that their loved ones are more ill or getting diagnosed at later stages. And if you look at the data, that does bear out, right? Quite often um, communities of color are diagnosed at far later stages, far more aggressive stages of cancer. So we should be thinking about them, the implications, right, to their their loved ones caring for them. Um, So again, far more intensive amount of time of caregiving and far less, resources. And then for good or bad, this demographic is often in either part-time to hourly work. So you think through the implications on health insurance um, to what COVID-19 um, kind of exacerbated in this community around their types of jobs being more dramatically affected. So that just kind of exposed uh, the various health inequities that we're all very aware of. Um, but I just hadn't I myself and I think our collective team just hadn't thought about the knock-on effects for this community.
0: Yeah, I I think there is a lot of conversation around health equity now, and and I'm involved with some of those projects, which I, it's very it's very close to my heart as well. And I know it matters a lot to you as well, Jasmine. But thinking about from the, it's not just the patient, it's the family, it's the caregivers, right? And 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 I think of my personal circumstance and how fortunate I am, which is why. I am always living such a life of gratitude because my wife has a great job. She, we have good insurance. If we were in a different circumstance, I, I, I can't even imagine the stress that that would that, cause it was stressful enough as it was. But add on to the things that you talked about, like if you maybe you're hourly wage uh, or a lower paid job and you know, worrying about insurance and getting time off and, and the relationships with your boss. And oh my gosh, it's just so. It, so it does extend from just the patient. Right. And so from what you're doing, I think, is super important.
1: Well, absolutely. And I view like we're trying to fund the research and awareness and partner with the type of organizations that are best suited to address this. Right. And we're just one part in this. And I think I mean, I, that's why I appreciate people like you at least having the conversation. Um, I'm hoping more systemic support comes in to particularly target the, the high needs. In these communities, right, to have better infrastructure support, whether it's paid leave, as you alluded to, or more understanding employers around flex time, or you know all the different things that we can do <laughs> with our part that we play and better supporting caregivers.
0: Is working with is is working with employers part of what you do?
1: So we again going back to I feel like the survey it gave us data to go back and show how how common it was, it was was surprisingly high, that over 95% of caregivers did not feel supported. And then you start to pull, um, it was close to 80% did not feel supported by their employers, right? Um, And again, I think a silver lining coming out of the pandemic is that in certain sectors, flex time just became the experiment that everyone did and they saw that it worked right? I mean, we saw within our own employee data that people reported being 35% more productive with being able to work from home. Um, but I still have this special place in my head and heart for hourly workers to say, you know, think they're still left behind in this and we have a lot more room to go. And I'm glad to see the paid family and medical leave being one component of that. Um, but I think employers need to think about Um, giving their hourly workers either, you know, consistent days that they can count on to know like, okay, this is when you're going to be coming in versus sometimes the variability that happens for hourly workers. Um, And I think others are being more thoughtful about the policy recommendations they're making, but those are one of the ones that we're currently advocating for.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to the this sort of point of care or the, the, the initial contact, you know, with a, with a clinician, the care, uh, with the care team, and, and how how do we make that more systemic where that becomes part of sort of the protocol of, you know, you're seeing a new patient, you're seeing in my world, it's lung cancer. So I'm picturing going into, you know, when I talk to the clinicians that I do have on my show, many of them, almost, I would say all of them, talk about that special relationship that they have, not just with the patient, but with the family. And, and now that, now that, you know, lung cancer patients are living longer, that's, you know, it's a sort of extended relationship. And so thinking about that initial, that initial visit to say, and oh, by the way, right. How, how, how do we change that? How do we like, what, what kinds of things have you guys thought through as far as, as far as getting that message to educate institutions and and individual clinicians to making that part of the process, if it's not already.
1: There's a few bright lights out there. I mean, I think of Cancer Support communities' work with their distress screening tool. I think I alluded to this earlier where they're looking at, you know, in moments over time, is there a change for a caregiver and how they're showing up, you know, with this multi-point survey, this intake survey. So that just gives um, the medical team information to say whoa <laughs> we've noticed um, your your sleep um, you're reporting far less of that which is something we saw with cancer caregiver data that compared to any other type of caregiver cancer caregivers are reporting sleeping the less they're again back to they're showing the most distress so I would say you know pointing to some best practices that are currently in play um, but I don't think it's it's even close to being uh, widespread and pervasive. So um, we want to continue to work on education and training for medical institutions and their respective staff on this whole role of care- cancer caregivers and, and touching base with them. But I would say this is for caregivers at large, not just cancer caregivers. But at this point in time, I think if we can raise the vote for cancer caregivers, we're raising the vote for everyone.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I love the work that you're doing, and I think it's so important. So, uh, I'm just grateful for the commitment that you know that you and your your team have put into this, and partnering with those organizations that are also collaborating with you. You know, and, and I'd love to do anything I can do to help uh, because I totally I totally recognize that. And I, you've really pointed out some things to me today that I, when I, you know, I when I hear conversations around healthcare equity and disparities. And, and I just feel like you're pointing out the importance of not just talking about the actual care for the patient, for the cancer patient, but you're talking about the care for the entire community, the people who are supporting the, the one who's going through cancer, the caregivers, right? When you said 33, or 33 hours,
1: and that's yeah. a week, right? Exactly. 33 hours a week. So again, that is nearly a full-time job. And let's not just think about caregiving in isolation. Quite often, we know that people are in a sandwich caregiving situation. They're caring for children. They're caring for another loved one, whether it's an elderly, disabled. I mean, there's many nuances to this. So it's not just in a a bubble. There's other things that caregivers are responsible for in the day-to-day.
0: Yeah, well, I, I can tell you it's, personally, it's one of the things that I've been giving a lot of thought to lately, and it's it's one of the personal missions that I have because I, as I've gotten involved more with the, the lung cancer community, particularly since since, since COVID, uh, and met so many people across the country, and I've met a lot of caregivers, um, and so I recognize that they do feel left, and they sometimes feel left out of the whole the whole conversation, as you know, not just the ones that need help, but just the ones that are trying to do more. So I, I'm. It's personally very important to me, and um, I wanted to s- just switch gears real quick before we go and, and ask you about the White Ribbon Project. Um, I know we we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I, from your perspective, as you know, someone who's worked in patient advocacy, uh, but also in policy and other um, other important uh, public health uh, uh, positions that you've been in, this White Ribbon Project and trying to really change the way the public perceives lung cancer as a disease that's of just for smokers or or that are that, not really recognized that anybody can get lung cancer, right? And so this movement, we feel we can move the needle much like the, the HIV community did many years ago and much like the breast cancer community did. So when you heard about the White Ribbon Project, what were your, what, what did you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's a very creative and essential way to open the door to have a conversation with the public and, you know, other key stakeholders in this conversation around um, just giving more respect and support to lung cancer patients, survivors, and their family members. And I continue to say, you know, even for those of our lung cancer um, patients and the families affected by lung cancer, you have to remember back in a certain point in time, or certain demographic, you know, cigarettes were just given out like they were candy, right? I feel like you were in the military. And so I just, we put so much of a burden on lung cancer at large for those who smoked. And then to your point, the growing number who haven't smoked at all. So just um, all, all of that, to me, we just really need to have far more compassion and support for the lung cancer community at large. And I love, I mean, that this is just one of the, the most uh, positive opportunities to help do that, to have that conversation.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, and that, there's one last thing I want to ask you. Um, and I'd like to ask all of my guests this, this question, not to put you on the spot, but uh, outside of your work, um, I'd like to tell us something that um, you're passionate about or maybe that people don't know about you.
1: So something I'm very passionate about, I try to practice what I preach in self-care. And so something that's like so essential for my mental health and physical health is I love to go to thin class. And so I'm one of the huge devotees to the Peloton, got me through the pandemic. Um, And and I love that there was a community element to that, right? Both when I go to live classes, um, but also these online classes. And I think there's something to be learned with that within the caregiver advocacy community, creating that on, you know, the online community and seeking that out. I would also say I have a precocious, sassy nine year old that just keeps me grounded and I seek humor out through her and through other ways possible. I just think, you know, I'm very lucky to be alive and kind of look very intentional in looking for the ways that the universe kind of winks at you. And I get that every day. With the interaction with my nine-year-old,
0: that's awesome. Well, I think I'll I'll end this by saying uh, how you describe yourself on Twitter as a mom and public health collaborator trying to create the change I want to see in the world with a sense of humor and intentionality.
1: I think. I think... <laughs> well, we got there. Yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I put, wrote that together in like thirty seconds, and I feel like that pretty much that's. My North Star. I try.
0: 100%. That's awesome. Well, listen, Jasmine, thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it. And, and, and I'm really grateful for all of the good work that you're doing in the world. So thank you so much.
1: Well, keep having these impactful conversations. And maybe we should ask more uh, medical professionals what they're doing for caregivers. Awesome. You have an important role.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.